Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning, and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anna Greta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and a Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Greta Hunter and beside me is Sharon Bessel. We're going to continue this week an extraordinarily important conversation, both for Australia in 2023, but also into the future. Sharon, can you talk us through the conversation for today? I would love to, Anna Greta. You and I have have often talked about the fact that budgets are a central tool of government, offering not just economic policy, but defining social and environmental policies and priorities for years ahead. Last episode, we talked to the amazing Professor Frank Bongiorno about the recent budget, what we can make of it in terms of our national values. And we also talked about the ways in which our new Labor government, which celebrates its first anniversary this weekend, is beginning to change the tone um, and to change the ways in which money is spent. Over the last year, we've spoken a lot about the very significant shift in language from this government. The language of care, which had been missing from our political discourse in Australia for so long, has now re-emerged. But how has this shift in language influenced budget decisions? Today, we're joined by two wonderful colleagues from the Crawford School to talk us through some of the detail of the budget, but to also work through the values that underlie it and the political choices that have been made. Anna Greta, would you like to do the introductions? Absolutely. I'm so looking forward to today's conversation. And we have two wonderful guests. Professor Paul Burke is head of the Aunt Corden Department of Economics and Deputy Director here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU. His research is in energy and environmental economics with a focus on the Asia Pacific. Elise Klein is an Associate Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School as well. Her research is situated in the intersections and the cracks between development, social policy, decoloniality and care. It's so wonderful to have you both with us today. First, we'd really like to start by asking a question of both of you. What were your overall impressions of this budget? Paul, would you like to start? Yeah, sure thing. I thought... It was a very smartly put together budget. It's one that angles the dial in the direction of fairness. There was some luck involved in it as well in terms of uh, the automatic stabilizers that are kicking in. Unemployment is so low and 
the government is expecting a surplus with this one, although we should wait and see for it to be fully developed, fully delivered before we fully believe it, I think. Uh, but it uh, is riding on a little bit of luck, a sensible uh, altogether budget strategy, I thought, and really building the platform for future reforms as well that the government might pursue uh, potentially in a second term. Let's wait and see. Uh, I did think that it, uh, it, it covered a lot of different priorities. So from the care economy, and it's great to see that language being used and that priority being included all the way across to the energy sector as well with money for hydrogen uh, and a lot more as well. So a lot to the budget. I think there's a lot to unpack there, uh, but altogether a strategy that tilts the dial in the direction that this government wants to be tilting it uh, and that also does set the scene, I think, for additional reforms as we keep moving along. Oh, what a great start to the conversation, Paul. There's a lot there that I know we're going to pick up on later. Elise, what were your thoughts on this budget? My take was probably a little bit different. I mean, I saw this, you know, a new government coming after a government before that, um, you know, in the end was not very popular at all. Um, and I, f- I felt that this budget is, you know, a a government that is is coming in after a terrible government trying to be just less terrible but going from very terrible to being less terrible is still terrible so i guess you know what i was after was a vision we're coming from an election where voters overwhelmingly asked for something more from their government um in terms of inequality in terms of poverty in terms of climate action um, and I did not feel that this budget um, laid out a vision here for us. So just being less terrible is not a vision. And, you know, trying to stay in power for the next election is not a vision. Um, and I think I, I really wanted to see this. I think the government, um, you know, is largely popular and, and there was a lot of good political will in the community um, to do something bold. And I, I didn't quite see that here. There are lots of issues there for us to, to, to dig into and to unpack, and, and we'll do that um, across the podcast. But before we, we kind of, I guess, get into some of those meatier issues that you've both raised and that I think we really do need to have conversations around, I wanted to turn to the, the very exciting issue of inflation. Um, and Paul, there's, as we were going into the budget, there was a great deal of discussion and, and some concern around the impact that the budget might have on inflation, either positively or negatively. Um, And I want to take the opportunity of having one of Crawford's fantastic economists in the room to ask you, Paul, what your thoughts are on uh, on the way the budget that was delivered is likely to affect inflation. Well, that really is one of the key questions. The budget, of course, has swung back to a projected surplus That's due to the automatic stabilisers, and that does help to put downward pressure on inflation. However, the decisions made in the budget, the discretionary decisions, were pushing in the other direction. In other words, if they hadn't changed the settings, the surplus would have been larger. It's true that inflation is a big challenge at the moment. Approximately 7% is the CPI inflation rate annually. 
And the Reserve Bank, of course, has been increasing interest rates, and that does create pressures out there on family budgets and on firms as well. So it's an interesting case. There was a need really to be doing some things in terms of spending, in particular to be helping those who really need it at the moment. And just one example is the job seeker increase. There are also some very smart decisions, I think, in terms of boosting, for example, aged care, nurses, etc. Their their incomes are being boosted as a result of decisions in the budget. which which is, in terms of inflation, it is stimulatory. It is putting more money out there. Uh, the government also, one of their other, other steps that they've made here is they have gone for electricity bill relief. So that might not necessarily impress the Reserve Bank, and that is money back into the economy. It can lead to inflationary pressures. But it is getting money where it's needed as well. So it's a fine balance and really, I think that's the, the path that the government has walked here, a fine balance between making sure that money is going to where it's needed, uh, avoiding stimulation in terms of um, tax cuts or additional spending that, that goes to the that top half of the distribution. So targeting it in at uh, job, job seekers and others. Uh, but altogether, we will see what happens with the inflation outcome and it's unlikely that the Reserve Bank has finished in their sequence of stepping up that cash rate. So we can expect likely to, we're likely to see additional interest rate rises coming up. Elise, inflation is clearly a dominant theme through this budget and it's been raised, as Paul's just mentioned, as a constraint for how the budget approached the social security and the way in which the job seeker, OS study and youth allowance were approached by the government. We saw uh, that people aged 55 to 59 relying on benefits received a larger increase. But there's been some disappointment that we didn't see the rate increase sufficiently to lift people out of poverty. We have seen the end of parents next. We've seen changes to the eligibility for the single parenting payment. So do you think that in the context of balancing the challenge of inflation that we are seeing this move towards better equity and fairness, or do you think there might have been other ways to frame it economically? Oh, I definitely think there are other ways to frame this economically. You know, in the discussion of inflation, no one talks about the stage three tax cuts, which was largely, I couldn't see the text um, of stage three tax cuts in the budgetary papers. And, you know, if we want to care about inflation, I think we need to care about those tax cuts. Um, In terms of Job seeker, um, yeah, I mean, it it is a raise, but it is not adequate, um, not even close to being adequate. And the Economic Inclusion Committee, you know, really pushed before the budget for, um, uh, you know, a, a better payment for folks that were receiving job seeker. We have not seen that with the budget, not even close. Um, so, you know, p- folks are going from around $49 a day to about $52 a day, and that is woefully inadequate to um, survive. We've got folks who are really struggling out there in the community, you know, having to make horrible decisions about, you know, keeping a roof over their head, you know, keeping food on the table or, or having medicine. 
and uh, and this is this is really concerning. And I think it's also important to sort of reflect on who are people in the job seeker space that, you know, I think around 40% have a disability. So the DSP criteria has been tightened, so it's harder to get DSP. Um, So you have a lot of folks who um, have a disability. You have around 20% from culturally linguistic diverse backgrounds who may be facing racism in the the labour market. And then you also have a proportion of folks um, who are First Nations peoples living remotely. And we know remote labour markets are extremely restrictive and in some parts non-existent. And so, you know, the the argument by the the government is this is a job seeker payment. You actually have, we have a situation where People are on that payment aren't seeking jobs because they cannot. They either cannot work or they're living in a place where there's not enough employment or that they are working. They're doing huge amounts of unpaid care work, which is gendered, um, but there's also all sorts of volunteer work that people are doing, um, all sorts of contributions to community people are doing. So, I mean, I say that because, yes, there has been some positive um, spaces in the parenting payment space. I will say that the Parents Next, uh, the cancellation of the Parents Next could have been done you know, last year um, when the government came in, um, that the uh, the the Joint Committee on Human Rights had already um, expressed concern that that program wasn't uh, had concerns around human rights breaches, and um, the government could have canned it then, but have waited closer to the budget. Um, and you know, I, I mean, it is good that parents can keep the parenting payment a. Um, is gone up from eight to fourteen, but it was the the Labor government that took it away from sixteen. Um, so we haven't gone back to where it originally was. Um, so, and I I have to say I am a little bit worried that um, you know whilst this is excellent for for single parents particularly and for some of the for older folks in the the economy too um, who have got the sort of higher rate um, over fifty five. I think there has been expression from uh, these people that have benefited from these moves, a concern from those that have been left behind um, in, in, in this space and, and that they have been sort of used as a way to say, okay, we're not leaving anyone behind, but actually there's a whole lot of people that are still being left behind because of this budget and this woefully in- inadequate, you know, so-called race to job seeker. Um, so, yeah, I... I I really needed to see more, and this is life and death for a lot of people. Um, people are struggling. Um, we know that, uh, and and um, they've been left behind from from the measures that have been put forward. Elise, I think that's such a, a powerful mapping that you've given us of, I guess, where the gaps remain um, in in this budget. And I think that point that you make is such an important one. We have an assumption that jobs are available at the moment if people will simply be prepared to look and to take them. Um, that that analysis that you give, that gave us demonstrates really powerfully that for some people jobs are not available. Um, and for me with the, the, the research that, that I do, you know, I so often see the incredibly painful decisions that parents and particularly single parents, usually single mums, need to make between feeding their children and caring for their children, you know, and being there for their children. I think they're decisions that we shouldn't require people to make. Um, it's it's deeply, deeply dehumanising and painful for people to have to make those those decisions. Um, 
And, you know, of course, I, I hear continually in my research about the impacts of living in poverty um, on children and on their families. And so those, those increases that we've seen, I think, are incredibly welcome, but they're not enough to, to lift people out of poverty for the, for the most part. There was some modelling that was done here um, at the ANU about a year ago by Ben Phillips and, and his colleagues that indicated that a 10% increase in the social security budget would lower poverty rates very, very considerably. Um, Paul, I'd, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on whether that kind of increase to the social security budget is the kind of increase that's affordable as a nation um, you know, is it affordable in terms of, of what it means for the budget? Um, and, and, and is it a, a cost that we have to bear if we want a completely equitable society? I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts around both the economic and also the normative arguments um, around a significant increase to the social security budget. I think a key issue here is revenue. Australia should be doing much better at collecting some budget revenue in very efficient ways because we have a lot of priorities to be spending on. And absolutely, we could be targeting poverty reduction. In a, We know how to do it. We, uh, an increase to welfare payments, job seeker and others, we know how to do it. We've done it before. It's done elsewhere. A key issue structurally is revenue. And really for Australia, there are a couple of things we could be doing. From the petroleum resource rent tax, We, if we turned the dial further on that, we could be generating billions of additional dollars of revenue per year that could be used exactly for these things. And that's a form of revenue raising which is very efficient, that would not add to inflationary pressures. We should be doing that. And in this budget, that's one step where the government just did not step far enough there was a change to the petroleum resource rent tax arrangements for offshore natural gas projects, but really it's not bringing in enough. And compared to other major liquefied natural gas exporters such as Qatar, other major hydrocarbon exporters such as Norway, we're not bringing in enough revenue. And it's a, it's a big problem, I think, in Australia. And over decades, we have let that problem grow. Also, I'm an economist. I can't not mention carbon pricing. We ideally would be bringing in billions of dollars from this, in this budget, from this economy in carbon pricing revenue via a carbon tax or an emissions trading scheme. Currently, we do have carbon pricing via the safeguard mechanism, but it's not a form of carbon pricing that's bringing revenue into the, to the budget. Those types of revenue streams, they could be used in many very useful ways, and we can talk about them. But I really think for Australia, we need to focus on efficient revenue raising to have the revenue in place for these priorities. Paul, that's that's such a significant part of the argument um, or a significant part of, of the discourse that I think we're just not hearing about. I don't think there was very much discussion around revenue flows in the lead up to the budget. Um, and it's a, clearly a conversation we need to have. And to add to that, I agree fully with Elise about the stage three tax cuts. If we're worried about inflation and we're worried about reducing inequality, the stage three tax cuts as they're currently uh, planned, they, that's just not the way to go. And uh, we really could be thinking about reining that in 
that would be one way to be reducing long-run inflation expectations, that's for sure. And, and Paul, as I hear you talking, I think about you know some of the arguments that Guy Standing makes, and of course he's a, a strong advocate for universal basic income, but argues that this is absolutely affordable if we think differently about revenue and move away from taxing inc- or relying on taxing income and consumption, but move to different types of levies um, on the very high profit-making um, extraction, pharmaceutical, and and and, and other um, corporations that that simply don't have the the amount of taxation applied to them or the the, the level of taxation applied to them that um, that that perhaps we would see if we had a genuinely just outlook um, around these issues. But Elise, I would love to hear your thoughts on these issues about um, about revenue and how we could raise the funds for the the more equitable policies that we need in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think these things are always political choices. Um, And, you know, whilst it's a budget and there's a lot of numbers, behind those numbers are choices about who's winning and who's losing. And I think Paul makes some really good points and areas to which um, revenue could be raised. Um, I also think, you know, the spaces around housing, I think that that also needs a lot of consideration here. and the kinds of support um, that some sectors of the community get um, in terms of uh, housing support. Um, I think that also needs to be looked at in terms of the acquiring not just of income but of, of, of wealth inequality across the country, we need to think about that too. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I am an advocate of basic income. I think um, it's a very, very important space for us to consider in terms of leaving no one behind. But I also think we need to continue to consider wealth inequality as well. Such an extraordinary conversation so far, so many questions to ask. But Paul, you've touched on the opportunities for revenue raising and particularly through our extractive resource sector and you've talked a bit about the carbon price. Um, I'm interested in, uh, in discussing a little bit more about the climate change strategy that informs the budget. The budget, of course, included $450 million to support the reduction of emissions from our largest emitters. There was $2 billion for a clean hydrogen industry and the creation of a net zero authority. Do you think that this package will help us meet the target of emission reduction or did you think it went far enough? Well, a great question and these initiatives will help. I think the net zero authority, I mean, it's a great idea, making sure that local communities have great opportunities in this transition is really key. And we can learn from the Latrobe Valley Authority in Victoria. They've played a really useful role in in helping the community and working with the community as the economy there does transition. So doing that nationally, I think, is a great idea. The budget as a whole and the decisions made in this this particular round of of the budget, the focus is on spending. I mean, ideally, we would be taxing as well. Our overall climate set, climate policy settings are not really what one would recommend. We have a very heavy emphasis in Australia on carbon offsets, and there has been a recent safeguard mechanism reform, which was not in the budget, but a recent reform of the government. It's important as well, but we're heavily reliant on the use of carbon offsets, which have their own problems in terms of integrity. In this budget, the focus is on spending and 
the context really is the United States and other countries as well, such as Canada, spending up quite big via tax credits and subsidies for hydrogen and other forms of clean energy as well in the United States via the Inflation Reduction Act. Here, Anna Greta, as you mentioned, $2 billion for clean hydrogen via production contracts. It's a start and a step, and it's only one part of the story. And with subsidies, we need to be careful. Money spent on subsidies is money we can't spend on many other pressing needs. So ideally, if we were to have a fantasy budget, we would not be focusing so much on the spending in this area in terms of hydrogen, for example, but moving towards carbon taxation as used in other countries such as Singapore and South Africa. One other thing just to mention as well, this government has a very ambitious electrification, uh, renewables in electricity target. So 82% by 2030 renewables in the electricity system. Very ambitious. And there's a focus here on transmission infrastructure as well. That is key facilitating infrastructure. And that's really good to see in the budget. Elise, did you have any thoughts about the carbon emission reduction? Um, I do think they had um, something in there around the middle arm project, didn't they? I feel like this has been the thing with this budget is that there's a lot of, you know, positive noises, I think, for people to be like, oh, wow, we're moving in a really great direction here. But then when it really comes to the question of are you going to really make the changes that we need to have proper um, action on climate, then we see, you know, I think it's like billions, isn't it? 1.9 billion or something in there for for the middle arm project. You know, that stuff really, really concerns me, um, you know, uh, and, and that's the stuff. That's where I, I feel um, we have to move to, to, to having those hard conversations, to moving past those old um, commitments, um, to moving into spaces of, 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 of you know, a future that, that looks after the climate. It's been such an extraordinary conversation so far, offering the perspective from the robust economics that informed the approach to inflation through to the argument that, in fact, what this is is a much less terrible budget um, and that perhaps good a good budget might be uh, one that takes on board the hard conversations and offers us a true structural reform. Listeners, we'll be back after a short break to explore this further. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Elise Klein and Paul Burke, and we're discussing the recent federal budget here in Australia. 
There was much discussion of a wellbeing type approach, particularly last year after the October budget. And the Treasury has, of course, the Measuring What Matters inquiry underway. This budget was not framed as a wellbeing budget. And there's been very little commentary around wellbeing as a concept. But there are some glimmers that perhaps in the longer term, the Treasurer is still signalling a shift. We would love to explore with the two of you for the next few minutes your thoughts on whether this budget provides the foundations for a wellbeing change in the next year or so. And Paul, I might start with you. A future wellbeing budget would need to embrace some fundamental principles, putting these environmental and human and social needs at the centre of a budgetary approach. It's interesting to consider elements like whether the downstream cost savings of addressing poverty and social support, what sort of impact that would have on changing demand, for example, in my area, healthcare. The wellbeing framework's a pretty remarkable opportunity for Australia to reframe its economic policy towards social goals and the environmental impact of the lives that we lead. So do you think this budget is providing the foundations for a stronger approaches to climate change and environmental policy in the future? As you mentioned, Anna Greta, the government is working towards a measuring what matters statement this year, so promised for a 2023 release. And They've opened a second consultation process for that at the moment. Uh, so, so that's interesting. They had one first consultation and now a second one. I think like many things, it depends how you do it. And me- measuring well-being is actually a difficult thing as well. There are lags involved. There are so many dimensions. Uh, Sharon uh, could talk to us all day about this, I think. Um, so it, it is a challenging thing. And I think it will also be a work in progress as well, a step-by-step type of process So I I do think eyes are on that statement coming out. When it comes to this budget, that's right, they didn't use the word well-being and and the framing there. But, of course, the key thing is the decisions made. And it's a budget. It's about how money is spent. And some of the decisions certainly are with an eye towards trying to reduce inequality and and to improve the country. And it is good to have a prime minister talking about improving the country rather than uh, making very disengaged statements about about their their uh, vision for the country, so I I think really overall this wellbeing budget is a is a move that will take time, and I I think we we shouldn't put too much hope in it as well in the short run. The key thing is those decisions, and we know how to reduce poverty. We know that increasing job seeker is a good way to go to reduce inequality. We know various things. And I do think that it's those decisions on how money is spent that are the very key thing at the end of the day. Elise, I'd I'd love to get your thoughts on some of these issues around wellbeing and particularly from a a kind of a social and equity perspective. You know, we we mentioned earlier that the change to eligibility for single parent payment has shifted with the age of the youngest child increasing from 8 to 14. I think that is such a welcome shift. It is hard to imagine in what universe it's appropriate for a single parent to be required to prioritise paid work over the care of a child that's just eight years old. Um, And we've also seen a focus on aged care and early discussions around childcare. And importantly, we've seen a shift in language from this government since its election with the use of the word care being explicitly used. And I know Anna Greta and I have been quite excited by that um, at various times over the last 12 months. 
but as you've you've already noted, Elise, you know there are some gaps in this budget, and you've you've explained why you're you're disappointed with significant parts of it. What would you like to see change so that actions match the new words that are being used, those words around care and around equality? And what do you think it would take for us to genuinely begin to move towards a wellbeing approach that puts people at the centre? Yeah, wow, that's that's a really generous question. And um, thank you. I mean, one odd agree with Paul's comments just now and and also just say um, whilst there was no talk about so much framing this budget as as a well-being budget what the framing was which was concerning was you know needing to get the balance right there was a focus on the well-being of the economy um, that we can't go too far that we need to get the you know yeah the balance right and you know this conversation around inflation and and what that does is it cements the this kind of norm that we've seen for a long time, that um, we are in service of the economy, not the economy is in service of us. And that's a really foundational part of what an a wellbeing economy is, right? It is an economy that is in service of people and the planet. And so until we make that shift, until we can change that language, until we can, um, you know, think about the economy in service of, you know, our sustainable, our, our prosperity, um, our sustainability into the future. I, I don't think we can get to a space of well, the wellbeing budget. So that would be one change. One thing I did like to, and it was just like a tiny moment in Chalmers' speech on budget night, is when he um, acknowledged the work of the unpaid work of of women. Um, so it was in the context of him returning partly the, the age from eight to the parenting payments from eight to, to 14, um, didn't go back to 16, but but went to 14. And he said, uh, it was just a small little comment, he said, you know, we acknowledge that work or that unpaid work or something along those lines. And I really appreciated that because for so long we have seen the exclusion of unpaid work um, as sort of, you know, not part of the economy. But we know and we saw through COVID, it holds up the economy. Um, it's a huge fundamental part of the economy and without unpaid labour, which is very gendered, mostly undertaken by women, there is no economy. Uh, and so I, I really appreciated that he said that. Um, I would like to see it go further um, so that, you know, the, the, the government can start to acknowledge all the contributions folks are making that are unpaid and, and particularly folks that are find themselves unemployed. Um, you know, for too long we've seen the weaponization of, you know, um, you know, the stigmatisation, I don't even want to repeat all of that now, um, for folks that are, find themselves unemployed. But the reality is people make, make huge contributions to, to society that are unpaid. Volunteer work, care work, um, effective labour, all of that really, really matters. So in one, so I think that's, I would encourage the government to go further down that track. And if we're thinking about sort of, you know, the climate crisis that we're faced with, you know, the continual sort of question of, you know, jobs of the future, um, you know, we need to make more space for that care economy, but but appreciating that that care economy is not just, you know, paid work, it is also the unpaid work uh, that folks are doing. And that needs to be supported. And it needs to go far, far more than than just the parenting payments. And, you know, and it's something why I say a basic income is very useful, because it can provide some economic security for all the unpaid work. Um, that folks are doing 
uh, more broadly. Thanks, Elise. Um, I, I could listen all day to, to your 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 thoughts on how we can really shift the way we 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 value what matters, not not so much measure what matters, but perhaps really value what matters. Paul, I I wonder if you just wanted to reflect at all on those comments Elise made, particularly um, about the shift towards recognising the the value of care socially, but also economically. Well, I thought Elise really uh, hit the nail on the head there. A budget is a reflection of values and values are really fundamental for a government and governments of course change the country and this government has a fantastic opportunity to do that they do seem to have a bit of whiplash from their last time in office and they are going for quite a low risk approach for the moment uh, and trying to be very well disciplined and I think they've done very well on that score but Australia does have some big challenges and some of them will potentially keep growing in size. Wealth inequality, uh, I think, really is a big, big issue in Australia and also meeting some of our stated society-level goals in terms of improving Indigenous outcomes and so on. I think Australia has a long way to go and really, when it comes to a budget, the key thing is not just revenue raising but efficient revenue raising try to go for the smartest approaches out there, for example, super profit taxes on fossil fuel extraction. That is very useful revenue that can be brought directly into play in meeting some of these these goals, these value-based goals that we have as a country. And can I also just say um, on that, um, I think one thing what's particularly challenging for the Labor Party um, is that their sort of commitment to Labor as being the sort of answer for economic prosperity. Um, And I think, you know, that's why I was a bit heartened to see Chalmers say what he said about recognising that unpaid care was work too, because like I've said already, is that, um, you know, not everyone who is unemployed can work um, or is in a situation where there's not enough jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea that, that you know, work is the answer or employment is the answer for, for economic security for everyone um, doesn't, doesn't hold true. Um, and I just really encourage that sort of thinking, that broadening out of what contribution means to the economy and, and how people can be economically secure um, if uh, you know, if if they're unable to to find themselves in employment, it can't be the answer. It's not the answer for everybody. It's so amazing listening to the two of you, I think, unpacking this, not just in terms of the minutiae of the economics, but thinking really broadly about the environmental and the social impacts of the budgetary approach that we've been presented with. And I, and I think we are seeing a shift with this government. I'd be interested as we're getting toward the end of this discussion, I'd love to hear from both of you what benefits you might see or what potential pitfalls you would see from using a broader wellbeing framework for us to approach the Australian economic strategy. Well, Elise, would you like to start on on what sorts of advantage you see in that shift? I think you've already given us a fairly long list of potential advantages, but but what sort of things are you encouraging Jim Chalmers to consider through this through this strategy change? It would be about putting people in the planet first. So on every line item of that budget is how is this helping people and how is this helping the planet? Um, And, you know, if you cannot answer that in the positive, then we have a problem. And, And, I mean, 
it may sound radical, but actually what else can we do when we're faced with an extraordinary climate crisis on our hands? And the inequality is real. Um, you know, these stage three tax cuts, but, you know, I mean, that that comes off a long line of, of a whole lot of policies over many years that have supported folks at the upper end and left um, others behind in very significant ways. And people are like, this is life and death for people. People are really struggling and um, they did not get help last Tuesday. Uh, and and now they're left, you know, waiting, wondering how, when, why. Um, so, you know, I, 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 we have to change. We have to move. We have to be brave. Um, we have to be bold. And, and I think the wellbeing budget is one tool, not not the you know not the everything, but it is one way in which government can help help government make make better decisions. Paul, I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts. It, to me, it doesn't sound radical for each line item of the budget to approach either an environmental or a social advantage, and preferably both. But Paul, what are your thoughts on a wellbeing type framework, and how might that influence the economic policy in Australia over the years ahead? Well, I do think altogether it's a very useful approach. Uh, the first thing is that a government needs to have values to express those values and then live the values as well so that each decision is viewed at through, those, through a lens uh, related to where the government wants to take the country. And it comes down to values, I think, is the key thing. When we bring measurement in, measurement's very important as well we should, of course, I love numbers, but we should, of course, remember the limits to measurement, uh, the lag issue that I mentioned. Uh, some things are difficult to measure. <laughs> it's, uh, some things are, we're very good at measuring the unemployment rate as defined, but some other things just naturally are difficult to measure or perhaps costly to measure as well. So there is a question of how much we want to spend on measurement also. I do think measurement is important and it is good to see broader measurement. Um, but I, I think there's not just one perfect approach. That's something that we can build on over time. We can't measure everything. But making sure that decisions are made with a goal and that we think also that the advice uh, suggests that the decision will help meet that goal, uh, I, I think it's a great way to be going. This has been such an extraordinary conversation that I would like to continue for, for much, much longer. <laughs> but we are going to have to begin to draw the conversation to a close. Um, Elise, you described how a wellbeing budget can be one tool in bringing about very significant change. Um, and I, I love the way you framed it in terms of that idea of, of asking of the budget how it is helping people and how it is helping the planet. That That is in some ways a simple, some ways a very human, but also a very, very powerful idea. And so as we do draw this, this conversation to a close, I'd, I'd love us to think about what we need to do to make all of this real. And so can we end perhaps by asking you what, what I know is a difficult question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, what issues would you like to see addressed as a priority by this government in next year's budget and then across the current term of government? Are there a couple of, of specific issues that, that you really think they need to focus on in order to make this shift? Elise, perhaps we could begin with you. 
I mean, they've got to pay folks who are on the job seeker. You know, that needs to be adequate. And, you know, I can't see much under $88 a day being adequate, quite frankly. I mean, our research looked at um, what was happening for people when people were paid that during the COVID pandemic with the $550 supplement. That made a difference to people's lives. People you know, were not experiencing poverty largely. Um, And so when they took that away, people went back into poverty. And that's why we talk about it as poverty-induced policy. That's what we have in this country. These are political choices. They can make a change on that. I mean, we haven't really talked about the sort of budget and, and, and what that shows or doesn't show in terms of commitment for moving towards treaty and thinking about you know, but I think I think one question about budgets and the economy always in Australia is um, the real cost and what is owed to First Nations folks. And I think there are important questions around, you know, what has it meant that we've had 235 years of colonisation, land acquisition um, and dis- structural disadvantage faced by First Nations folks uh, who live live out that reality every day, there's an important budgetary question um, and an economic question around what debt does the Australian economy owe to First Nations people from the expropriation that, that our economy has been built on. And I think in the future, that question, a run of reparations, um, is going to be um, front and centre uh, as we move uh, towards towards treaty. Elise, thank you. Um- Paul, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on those priority issues that you'd like to see the government focusing on. Well, we should remember the budget is still in a structural deficit and <laughs> we have so many good priorities and many spending needs with an ageing population and so on. So I do think in Australia a key thing, not just for next year's budget, but going forward is on the revenue side to destigmatize the word tax to get much smarter in the way we collect revenue. We should be doing the research. We should be identifying the revenue-raising mechanisms that are the most efficient and really communicating that as well because in Australia, I think we've done quite poorly on that and the word tax has a very negative connotation, but we need we need taxes. We need revenue. Uh, otherwise, we're just not going to be able to meet various other goals I think fairness and continuing the work there, I think is a, it's a priority in Australia over coming years. And then also just the environment and setting up our economy for coming decades and for the transition to net zero. Smart investments in infrastructure. We do need to be careful not to be subsidising the wrong things, not to be spending in ways that we will look back on and regret and Funding for natural gas projects, fossil fuel projects would fall into that category. We have so many opportunities in clean energy. So I do think a big focus in particular on transmission and on grid management to make sure that we can shift quite quickly towards 100% clean energy in Australia. First of all, clean electricity and then electrify out things such as the transport sector as well. So lots of priorities there, but the environment and setting up an economic future for Australia as a clean energy producer and exporter as well, they are really key. 
Elise Klein and Paul Burke, this has been an extraordinary conversation. Your expertise, your wisdom and your compassion is so important in helping us to understand this budget, but also how we move forward. Um, and listening to you both reminds me, if I ever need reminding, of why I love being at Crawford. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sharon, that was an extraordinary conversation. I, I feel so privileged to be working at the Australian National University on in a place where we can draw on expertise as rich as the conversation we've just had. It was wonderful to hear the balanced and nuanced discussion of the economics behind this budget, alongside the extraordinarily importance of both the social and environmental impacts. I loved a whole series of things that both Paul and Elise have mentioned, and I'd love to be able to unpack some of those themes. I'm no doubt that will carry through the conversations through this year. Paul highlighting the limits to measurement and the way in which our tendency to break the things down into small measurable bite sizes sometimes does undermine good policy development. I love the idea that we destigmatize tax. I think we desperately need to do that. And celebrating the way in which we can share resources with each other in a community could be a radical shift. Ideas of fairness and equity, I think, are important themes and ones that resonate strongly with what we've been talking about now for some years, the importance of valuing care. I was struck listening to our wonderful Prime Minister in the day or two around the budget when he talked about the budget balancing the needs of the people with the needs of the economy. And I remember thinking as I heard him make that statement what that I know of people's needs. I know people need food and water and housing. People need lives that connect, that care, and that in which they can give contribution. But I did wonder what needs the economy might have, and I'm struck that the needs of the economy really do impact on our capacity to address poverty, inequity, housing, and our natural environment. I do think that this is the conversation for our time, and it's one uh, into which a multitude of voices will be welcome, and I, I think it will remain an important topic of discussion for us moving forward. But Sharon, what were your thoughts on today's discussion? Like you, Anna Greta, I, I thought that was just an extraordinary conversation um, and one that, that I really enjoyed. And, and I'm very keen for us to have both Elise and Paul back over the course of this year to continue those conversations. I, I, I wanted to, to pick up on, on your point about the needs of the economy. And I think this is a really interesting issue to reflect on because the economy does serve a purpose. Um, we can't pretend that the economy doesn't exist. We can't pretend that we're not connected to a global economy. All of those things matter greatly. But we seem to find ourselves in a situation where we have an incredibly narrow understanding of what the needs of the economy are. And those needs have been framed in a way that deprioritise and marginalise the needs of people. And so I think there were, there were two messages that I would take away from the richness of that conversation. And one was the, the powerful point that Elise made, which was the economy needs to serve the people. <laughs> and so I think we do need to rethink the role of the economy. We need to understand and appreciate the role that the economy plays, but we need to prioritise the ways in which the economy serve the people, serve the environment and serve the planet. And that's a critical reframing that I think we're on the cusp of, but we need much, much more thinking around. And the other message was was the issue that Paul raised that you've already touched on, Anna Greta, the need to destigmatize tax. 
but to also recognise that we need revenue to pay for the things that we want. And so how do we do that in ways that are both fair and just, but also in ways that are imaginative and creative and move us beyond the neoliberal framework that held us tight for the last two decades of the 20th century and move beyond the the nastiness of 21st century capitalism that aims to commodify everything, including care. So, Anna Greta, I'm excited by the ideas that were thrown up through that conversation. I want to revisit them over the year, and I'm very grateful to Elise and Paul for joining us and having this conversation. Absolutely. This was not just an episode about the budget. Listeners, this podcast is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to the publications and the sources that we've discussed in today's show notes. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with our future episodes. And of course, if you're feeling generous, we always love to hear from you and you can leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about this podcast. And Anna Greta, while we love reading those reviews, especially when they're nice ones, we also love hearing directly from our audience. So listeners, please do reach out to us. You can contact us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's at APPS Policy Forum, or you can flick us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. And that's all we have time for today. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and you take away some of those ideas and mull them over again and again. But for me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anagreta Hunter, we'll see you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.